Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you guys here and thankful we can be together to worship the Lord. I want to start by reading this verse from Psalm 41, verse 9. It says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Have you ever been betrayed by a close friend? You ever had a close friend who you really trusted lift his or her heel against you and stomp on your heart? Have you ever had a friend promise their loyalty to you and then you later discover that he or she was betraying you behind your back? If that has happened to you, I'm very sorry because it's very painful to be betrayed and it's even more painful to be betrayed by those closest to you. And Jesus Christ knows exactly what that feels like. He's, he's been there. Jesus, who is God, empathizes with you. Okay? Sympathy is when you feel compassion or you feel bad for somebody for what they're going through. Empathy for somebody is when you feel bad or sympathy for somebody because you've gone through what they're going through. Jesus empathizes with you if you've been betrayed. And when you have been so crushed that you are too weak to pray for yourself, it is Jesus who fills you with his own Holy Spirit to pray to God on your behalf with what the Bible says are groanings too deep for words. When he was eating his final meal with his close friends just hours before his arrest, Jesus quoted Psalm 41, 9, and he said, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Truly, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And within hours, Jesus' disciple Judas would conspire with the authorities to trap Jesus at night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas would betray Jesus with a kiss on the cheek. Jesus would be arrested. He'd be tied up by some of the very men he came to rescue. Jesus' disciples would scatter, and even his closest friends would deny even knowing him. And this betrayal was part of what Jesus signed up for when he left heaven as God and came to earth to rescue us from sin in fact, God predestined this betrayal in order to accomplish his salvation plan for the world, for you and me, for all who would trust in him. If you've got your Bible with you, please open with me to John 18, verses 12 to 27. I want to go through the passage a little bit at a time and talk about it and then Come back around at the end with a few application points for us. John 18, 12 to 27. Let's ask the Lord to continue to help us as we turn there. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for giving us this opportunity to meet with you today, to open your word as a church family. And Lord, we, we believe you when you say that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And, and we just ask that you would do with this powerful word in our lives today what you want to do. We confess our 
impurity to you or sinfulness to you or pride or arrogance. We confess to you that we have rebelled against you. We have disobeyed your commands. And we ask that you would please forgive us in the name of Jesus Christ. That you would please grant us repentance from sin, that we would no longer desire that, but that you would turn our hearts away from sin and turn it to you as we trust in you. We ask this morning that you would please protect us from the evil one, that you would do your will today in our lives. And for those who do not know you, that you would open up the eyes of their heart, that you would give them faith to believe this gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll pick up where Jesus is arrested and he's tied up by the officers in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is in John 18. Let's look at verses 12 to 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Okay, so it's important as we get into this passage to remember that Jesus has done nothing wrong. Okay, uh, That's part of the ironic thing, part of the uh, very sad thing about this entire arrest and trial and punishment is that Jesus is totally innocent. And as we look at the passage, it's going to help us to understand um, what the authority structure was in place during Jesus' day. So I have a few slides to help us. The highest level of authority was and still is God, okay? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This is who God is. He is the one to whom every person, you and me, each individually and as one corporate human race, are accountable right now on earth and when we die. Uh, Romans 14, 10 to 12, we don't have this on the screen, but listen closely. It says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So the highest level of authority in existence is God himself. We are all ultimately accountable to him. Now, in Jesus' day, the next level of authority was the Roman Empire. This was the government. And during Jesus' lifetime, the Roman Empire had conquered almost every country surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. The Romans ruled Spain. They'd conquered France, Italy, Greece, Egypt, all of the Mediterranean coastline from Europe to Africa over to the Middle East. And the Romans also ruled over Palestine in the Middle East, which was where Jesus lived. And in Palestine, the Romans policed the public. They had Roman soldiers. And the Romans ran the court system. And they sent people to jail. And they sentenced people to death. And so if the Jewish leaders... The Jewish leaders, if they wanted to put Jesus to death, they couldn't just do that on their own. They didn't have the authority to do that. The Jews would have to convince the Romans that Jesus was guilty of a crime so terrible that it warranted his execution. 
So that takes us to the third level of authority in Palestine, which was the Jewish Sanhedrin. Okay? The Sanhedrin was the highest council of the Jewish people. It consisted of around 70 uh, Jewish uh, teachers and priests and elders. All of the key leaders were on the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was led by one person who was the high priest. Now, the Romans allowed the Jewish Sanhedrin to assemble and to govern their own Jewish people in matters related to the Jewish law. The Romans didn't really care what the Jew Jews believed or what they did, just as long as they obeyed all the laws of the Roman Empire and didn't make problems for them. So now that we can kind of understand these, these layers of authority that we see intertwined in this passage and in the coming chapters, I again say that it's crucial to understand that Jesus had not broken any of the Roman laws, and Jesus had not broken any of the Old Testament law, which he spoke. It was his law, okay? But Jesus had broken some of the laws that the Jewish leaders had created, okay? And, and in their minds, this was equal to God's law. Their law was equal to God's law. So they called Jesus a lawbreaker. They also called him a blasphemer uh, because he told people the truth. He told them that he was God. And so as a result, obviously, that ticked off the Jews and, and a number of them wanted to kill Jesus. And before they could kill him, before they could take him to the Roman court system, they first had to take him to the Jewish Sanhedrin. And if the Sanhedrin determined that Jesus had committed a crime worthy of execution, then they would send him to the Roman courts that had the authority to legally imprison or kill him. So we read in John 18 that a group of these Jewish leaders convinced the Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. And the way they did that is they exaggerated, they lied. They said he's, he's a troublemaker, he's, he's got out this huge group of followers, they could riot against the Roman Empire at any time. So we gotta go get this guy. And they knew Jesus, they all knew Jesus. And here in this passage, it was early Friday morning, okay? It was around 1 a.m., Remember the night before was the Last Supper? Jesus never slept after that Last Supper. He's been awake. And the Jews would need to expedite Jesus' trial, okay? In fact, it was necessary for them to make sure that Jesus was killed that same day if they were gonna kill him. Because Jewish law did not allow people to be killed on the Sabbath, which was the next day, Saturday. And you also couldn't kill a Jewish man during a festival. And Saturday was the first day of the week-long feast of unleavened bread. So if they were going to kill Jesus, they would need to rush his case through the Jewish court system and then through the Roman court system and then execute him all in this one day, Friday. So here we are in the middle of the night and this mob of Jewish officers and Roman soldiers drag Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane back down the Kidron Valley, back up into Jerusalem. And according to John 18, 13, the high priest that year was named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the guy in charge of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And verse 14 says that Caiaphas had already made up his mind to kill Jesus. Okay? In John 11, remember, Caiaphas was the one who said that if they were gonna have peace between the Jews and the Romans, then they would need to kill Jesus because he was a troublemaker. 
The interesting thing, though, is that the mob does not bring Jesus to Caiaphas first. Instead, they bring Jesus to Caiaphas's father-in-law, Annas. So if they were in such a rush to put Jesus to death, then why stop at Annas' house? This is why. Several decades earlier, Annas was the high priest. He was in charge of the Sanhedrin. And he'd been a very esteemed high priest for 20 years, uh, from 6 B.C. to 15 A.D., And then all of a sudden, he, did, he made a decision that the Romans didn't like, and so they told him he had to step down, okay? The Jews didn't like that. But in the years after that, all of the subsequent high priests who took Annas' place, they were either Annas' sons or his son-in-laws. And so in the eyes of the Jews, Annas was still the guy in charge, okay? He didn't have any official power, but he still had all of the influence among the Jewish people, And so John, in this passage, even refers to Annas as the high priest. And so the mob brings Jesus tied up. They come to Annas' property, which would have been a house and also a courtyard, a fenced-in courtyard. And we read in verses 15 to 18 that Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. And so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Okay, so, so while Jesus was being taken to Annas, the gospel writers tell us that Peter and another disciple were following him at a distance. Uh, we can't be certain who the other disciple was. Most people think it was John. But we do know that he had some sort of friendship with Annas. Okay? This other disciple was friends with Annas, and when Jesus was brought into the courtyard, they let the disciple in with Jesus But Peter, he didn't have the backstage pass. And so he had to wait outside until the other disciple came back and talked to the girl, who's essentially the bouncer at the door. Why they couldn't find a grown-up to guard the gate of the high priest, I don't know. Um, But it says that the other disciple convinced the girl to let Peter inside. And as Peter was coming in, she asked him, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And the way she asks that, she phrases it in a really negative way. She doesn't say, are you one of the disciples too? She says, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? So instead of countering her, because that's the position she puts him in, he has to counter her if he's going to say yes. Instead of countering her, though, it's almost like Peter agrees with her just so he can quickly get into the courtyard and tells her, no, I'm not one of Jesus' disciples. I remember just a few hours earlier at supper, Jesus told Peter that Peter would deny him three times that very night before the rooster crowed. And Peter was shocked when he heard Jesus tell him that, and he said, Jesus, Master, I'll never deny you. I'll lay down my life for you. So this is the first time, though, that 
Peter denies Jesus. And this is kind of the handwriting on the wall. We know it's only a matter of time now before Peter will deny Jesus again. But right now, Peter is cold because it's nighttime. And so he walks through the courtyard over where the fire is. I love the little details. It says it was a charcoal fire, okay? And he wants to warm up. And Peter was there watching Jesus bound from a distance. He's standing by the fire, Peter is, and he's rubbing shoulders with the officers who had arrested Jesus. And now Annas came out of his house, and Jesus' unofficial trial begins. Verse 19 to 21 say that Annas, the high priest, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So Annas questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And from what we read in the Gospels, Jesus leaves his disciples out of it. Okay? He again shows himself to be the good shepherd who protects his sheep. He doesn't point the finger at them. And then regarding the content of his teaching, Jesus assures Annas that most of his teaching has been in public and that even the things he taught his disciples in private is not a secret. And then Jesus says something really interesting here in verse 21. He says, why are you asking me? Ask the people who have heard me teach to tell you what I've said. And by saying this, Jesus is pointing out the fact, which is something that we might not catch just reading it at the surface level. What he's doing, though, is he's pointing out the fact that this trial is illegal. Okay? D.A. Carson writes that in the Jewish court of law, the proper procedure was in to interrogate the witnesses, not the defendant. Okay? And in addition to that, the high priest was supposed to to first hear the witnesses for Jesus before hearing the witnesses against Jesus. But since they decided to throw together this trial at 1 a.m. in the morning at Passover, most of the witnesses who could defend Jesus were at home sleeping in bed or they were hiding around a campfire, too afraid to speak up. And so Jesus calls out Annas, essentially, in a roundabout way, and he asks Annas to question his witnesses. And in verses 22 to 23, we read, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So even though Jesus was right to ask for a fair trial, reality is he was not going to convince anybody here to stop the proceedings because they were all against him from the beginning. Okay? And so one of the officers strikes Jesus across the face. He rebukes him for talking so disrespectfully to Annas, who isn't even technically the high priest. And Jesus tells the officer, if what I said is wrong, tell me why it's wrong. But if I'm right, why are you hitting me? 
And neither Annas nor the officer answer him because they know as well as everybody else knows that what they're doing is illegal. Commentator Richard Phillips explains some, of, some more reasons why this trial is illegal. He writes that Jesus was arrested without proper charges based on the witness of an accomplice who had been bribed. Jesus was tried at night, whereas the law required daytime proceeding for capital cases. Jesus, um, and also contrary to the law, the proceedings were held on the day before a feast. No testimony in favor of the, accused was, of the accused was sought or permitted, and Jesus was directly examined and called upon to testify against himself. Those are all illegal uh, actions in the legal system they had in place. And so Jesus has no one else who's going to speak up for him. So Annas decided he'd had enough of Jesus, and verse 24 says that Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Annas wanted to, remember Annas was in on this too. He wanted to move Jesus along to the Sanhedrin as quickly as possible because the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, would be waking up around 6 a.m. That's about when the Roman court opened. Okay. And the Jewish Sanhedrin could condemn Jesus quickly still in the middle of the night. Then they could take Jesus over to Pontius Pilate first thing in the morning and he could be tried then. And John, in this passage, in, this, in John's account, does not spend time describing Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, which is interesting. You'll read that in the other Gospels. But what we do know is that the high priest Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, coincidentally, happened to have all 70 officers and elders and leaders assembled in the middle of the night, ready to judge Jesus when no crowds were around. And then John circles back around to Peter. And he writes in verses 25 to 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. So here Peter denies knowing Jesus the second and third time, and according to Matthew's gospel, the second denial happened when another servant girl approached Peter and asked that same negative, kind of negatively phrased question, you're not also one of the disciples, are you? And Peter denied it, and we read that he denied it with an oath. Okay, he swore that he was not. And then a third person came up to Peter and Peter was from Galilee and we read in the other accounts that they knew he was probably one of Jesus' disciples because they had a little different accent in Galilee and they heard that in Peter's voice and so they brought that up to him. They said, um, this guy who happened to be related to the man whose ear Peter had just cut off in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked Peter, didn't I see in the garden with Jesus? Aren't you the one who cut off my cousin's ear. And Peter again denied it. And then it says immediately, at once, a rooster crowed, just as Jesus said it would. And Matthew writes that right then, Peter realized what he had done. 
He ran outside of the courtyard and he says he wept bitterly for denying Jesus, for denying that he knew him. Peter was guilty of denying and betraying his best friend, Jesus, who's also his Lord, the Lord. I am God. And he denied him three times. And this was only three hours after he swore to Jesus his undying allegiance to him. There was a commentator I read this week named Brown who wrote this sentence that really captures all of this passage really succinctly and beautifully. He writes that John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. That's an amazing contrast. Okay, now what I want to do is I want to bring this passage home a little more by asking us a couple of questions about it. First, what steps led to Peter's rapid downfall in denying his master? And then second, where do we see the gospel in this message, in this passage? Okay, first, let's get, take the first one first. What steps led Peter to quickly deny his master, Jesus? And I'm leaning on Richard Phillips here who answers this question in three parts. The first step that led Peter to quickly deny his master was overconfidence in his own spiritual strength. Overconfidence in his own spiritual strength. The moment that Jesus told his disciples that he would be betrayed, Peter promised Jesus that he would never deny Jesus. He just didn't believe Jesus, that he was capable of that. And in fact, according to Mark's gospel, uh, Peter boastfully compares himself to the other disciples and he tells Jesus, even though they all fall away, Jesus, I'm not going to. If I must die with you, I will never deny you. See, Peter boastfully thought that he had a stronger faith than everybody else. He, uh, He believed that he was somehow immune to the same temptations and dangers that threatened other disciples. And as a result, he was careless. He uh, approached the hour of Jesus' arrest with carelessness. He was unwise. He did not arm himself with the shield of faith because he assumed he was always ready for battle. His armor was always on. and, And at the end of the day, literally and figuratively, Peter denied Jesus three times in public. And the exact same thing can happen to you and to me if we are overconfident in our own spiritual strength. If you consider yourself a a spiritual superman or superwoman, and, and maybe you do that subconsciously, or maybe you don't even consider yourself a superman or superwoman, but you might think that you don't have really any need to stand firm when you wake up or when you go to work or when you go to school or when you go to practice or when you go out into your neighborhood or what, right? Um, You may not think that you need to stay alert for spiritual dangers. That thought may not even cross your mind. And perhaps when you're least expecting it, 
you, like Peter, will cave under the pressure of potential persecution, and you, like Peter, might cave into temptation. Men, if your work takes you on the road for business trips, away from your wife and kids, are you overconfident in your own spiritual strength? Or are you sober-minded about your own spiritual strength? Do you intentionally surround yourself with other men, or do you dangerously put yourself in situations in which you are alone with a woman? When you go to your hotel room, are you watching shows on the TV that you wouldn't watch if your wife and kids weren't in the room? If you're hanging out with coworkers who are negatively affecting you with, you, you know, ungodly talk, ungodly things they're doing, are you willing to politely excuse yourself because you don't want to fall into the same sin that they've fallen into? You don't have to be mean about it. You just have a higher allegiance. You can politely excuse yourself and not be around that. Not because you're better, but because you know you're capable of doing the exact same thing they are. Teenagers, men and women, when you log into Facebook and begin to read other people's comments, are you overconfident in your own spiritual strength or are you sober-minded about your spiritual strength? It seems like I talk to a lot of people who are on Facebook often and reading about other people's lives all day and it only makes them feel worse. And I think that's because Facebook is not reality. Okay? You're watching people show the highlight reels of their lives and you're comparing it to the footage of your normal everyday life with all of its issues and conflicts, which they have too, they're just not showing it. Or maybe you're inundated with endless news stories about tragedies around the world and you're, it's combined with drama that you're seeing online with friends and family and you get offline and you're w- wondering why, why you feel so crummy. I will say this, before you log into Facebook or social media or whatever, the internet in general, know what you're getting yourself into. Think about it. You're entering a war zone. Don't be overconfident about your own spiritual strength. Be sober-minded beforehand. Check the motives of your heart. Why is it that I am even getting online? Is it something that you have to have? Is it something you're addicted to? Or are you okay not having it? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so I I think social media can really be, it can be used for good, for sure, right? But instead of being overconfident in our own spiritual strength as Christians, we need to ask the Lord to give us a sober-minded evaluation of ourselves so that we can stand on guard against temptation and stand firm against sin for the glory of God. The second step that led Peter to 
quickly deny his master was a failure to pray when Jesus urged him to pray. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked Peter and the other disciples several times to join him in prayer. But Peter obviously didn't take Jesus seriously enough to actually do it, to actually pray. Instead, Peter fell asleep alongside the other disciples. And Phillips, uh, this commentator, writes this. An overconfident, self-reliant spirit will never be active in prayer. You hear that? A person who is overconfident and self-reliant will never be active in prayer. You see, this attitude of self-reliance and overconfidence opposes everything Jesus was describing in John 15 about what it means to abide in him. Because in John 15, Jesus commands us, his disciples, to abide in him because he is the source of true life and true power and true freedom. And apart from him, he says, you can do nothing without me. Nothing. But if their lives didn't reflect this desire or discipline to abide in Jesus, then they were at risk of falling away from Jesus. And the exact same thing is true of you and me. How are we doing in our prayer lives? Paul urges believers to pray without ceasing. How are we doing at abiding in Jesus where he is at the forefront of our minds during the day? Where he is the desire of our hearts. Where honoring him and resting in his love and grace is where we want to be. Does our prayer life with God demonstrate that we truly believe that without him we can do nothing? <clears throat> this is one of the redemptive parts of suffering and brokenness. Because God can allow us to be pretty crushed and he redeems it to show us you can't do anything apart from me. You can't. You need me. Man, are we begging God? Are you at that point? Have you ever been to that point where you're begging God to help you make it through the day and to give you grace? <laughs> Do we see the impurity in our lives? Are we asking God to purge it from us? Purge this crud out of my life and help me to live a holy life, God. I know that I'm sinful. I know that I'm not perfect, but I don't want to stay there. Holy Spirit, you're in me. Please work in me. Continue to work in me. Do you believe that you're weak and that but for the grace of God, you could not stand or breathe or think or believe in Jesus or follow in his steps? But for the grace of God, you and I couldn't even get here in this room this morning. We need God's help to learn to pray without ceasing. Just, you know, it doesn't mean <clears throat> you have to have a prayer closet at work that you're going to every five minutes. You pretend to go to the, you know, the water jug and you go to the closet instead. That's not what we're talking about. <coughs> talking about talking to God, having this relationship that he saved us into being cognizant and aware that ultimately we're accountable to this God. That ultimately he sees everything done in light and in darkness. And in Jesus Christ, he is for us. Okay? We do not have to fear his judgment in Christ. 
Because on the judgment day, there will only be the reward of blessing which Jesus Christ earned for his church, for those who trust in him. Okay? And this is the God who loves you, who fills you with breath and with life, and he's the one who will give you everything you need and more. Lord, teach us to lean on you through prayer. We need that, all of us. And the third step that led Peter to quickly deny his master was following Jesus at a distance. Okay? In Luke's gospel, he notes that Peter did not merely follow Jesus to the courtyard, but that he followed Jesus from afar, a long ways away, so as not to be associated with Jesus. And in the courtyard, Peter didn't go in and stand next to Jesus, right? He stood around the fire instead. The guys who arrested Jesus, not, not because he just wanted to warm up, because he wanted to blend in with everybody else. And when he was asked if he was one of the disciples, Peter denied him three times because he didn't truly want to suffer and die with Jesus. And ironically, Peter was afraid of the physical danger of being associated with Jesus, but Perhaps it hadn't uh, crossed his mind the reality of the spiritual danger of rejecting Jesus. And in a similar way, you and I can be led astray very quickly by following Jesus at a distance. Maybe you're happy to be considered a Christian as long as it is still considered somewhat admirable and socially acceptable in our culture. Uh, Or maybe you're wondering how much you actually have to own this Christian thing and still get into heaven when you die. Because that's what's really driving you, perhaps. You just want to go to heaven. You don't want to go to the other place. You want to be happy after death. Do you believe that the Bible is Jesus' word and that it has the final say on all matters of morality and ethics and justice and that it is truth. Truth. Jesus says in John 17, your word is truth. He doesn't say it's just true. He says it is truth. It's not true in that it aligns with some other truth. The word is truth. It is the standard of all truth by which we compare the world around us to see what is true. You compare it to the word. God's word. If you do believe that, this is the next challenge. Do you know what it says? Have you read it for yourself? It's a big book. You can get through it, though. I'm a slow reader. I've gotten through it. You can get through it. Have you read it? Because this is why. There are some hard passages in there. Okay? There are a number of passages where you walk away saying, I don't understand that. I don't know why God did that or why God says that. But I do, this, I do know this. I believe that God is right for doing that and saying that, and I'm sticking by his word. Okay? And we're not talking about blind loyalty to the word of God. That's not what we're talking about. We want to be thinking people, and at the same time, we humbly come to the word of God and say, he is God, I am not. No one can un- understand or fathom his wisdom and understanding. So I tell you, don't be content to follow Jesus from a distance. 
That's dangerous. And that's not what he offers you. And that's not why he saved you. He offers you eternal life with him as you abide in him and as he abides uh, in you. So the question is not, how closely do I have to follow Jesus and still go to heaven? The question is, how much of Jesus can I experience before I get to heaven? That's the question, okay? Jesus has given us the gift of the Bible, which we have in our language. 6,000 other people groups do not have the language, uh, the Bible in their language. I was, ah, okay, I know I got it. Let me say this real quick. Papua New Guinea has 830 people groups, and it's the size of Washington. And that's equal to every town in Washington having its own language. Every different town. Where people are sacrificing, missionaries are going to try to get the word in their language so people can hear the good news about Jesus. Let's not take this for granted. This didn't just show up at our doorstep. This came at a great cost. People died. People were burned at the stake to give us the Bible in our own language. Jesus has given us the gift of his word. He's given us the gift of conversation with him through prayer. He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He's given us the gift of his church with whom we do life together to to point one another to the gospel, to point one another to the truth of his word. So this is a question for you and me. How are you utilizing these gifts from Monday through Saturday to follow Jesus more closely? Because you can't follow Jesus closely if you just follow him on Sunday. The three steps that led Peter to quickly deny Jesus were overconfidence in his own spiritual strength, a failure to pray when Jesus urged him to pray, and following Jesus at a distance. And now I want to ask the second question about today's passage, which is this. Where do we see the gospel here? And in order to see the gospel or good news of Jesus in this passage, we need to see first what it says about who we are and what we have done, and then we'll take a look at who Jesus is and what he has done. And when you look at the characters besides Jesus in this passage, which one most closely reflects you? And who you are and what you've done. Have you been part of the mob that arrested Jesus? Maybe you just wanted to fit in with the crowd. You didn't even know much about Jesus, but since everybody else was rebelling against him, then you thought that that was the right thing to do too. You just wanted other people to accept you and like you. Or maybe Jesus offended you and you were part of that mob. Maybe he said something in the Bible or he allowed something really terrible to happen in your life that crushed you and ticked you off and you wanted Jesus dead. Or maybe you've been like the servant girl in this passage. Maybe you used to persecute Christians and you asked them, you're not serious about believing in Jesus, are you? Like serious, when this really comes down to, you're outside of the church, you're not really serious about this, are you? Or maybe you've given other Christians a hard time for their devotion to Jesus. And maybe you've confused the Christian pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of righteousness for which Jesus saved us. Maybe you've confused that with this word that you call legalism. And you use this word legalism as kind of this catch-all phrase to stay in your unholiness. And you think that people who seriously try to follow Jesus closely, oh, they're just legalistic. Or maybe you identify best with Peter 
you, you've overestimated your own spiritual strength. You're prideful about being a Christian. And when it comes down to it, you don't truly believe you need his help or his grace because you think you can reach God on your own. You don't truly pray to God very often because you kind of got it, right? You're tough. You can do this thing on your own. Or maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but you're following Jesus from a long ways back and you don't really know what he's saying up ahead because you can't even hear him. And honestly, you're afraid of being associated with him. Or maybe you're like the high priest Annas who uh, you, you positioned yourself over and above Jesus without even knowing it maybe as though he should answer to you and he should serve you. Maybe you're not sure if you believe in Jesus yet and you're not fully convinced of the arguments of the Bible, if this is reliable or not. Maybe you come up with every excuse to say, you know what, I just need a little more evidence and then I'll believe. Maybe you have pridefully made yourself the judge and you believe the delusion that Jesus Christ, the creator and judge of the entire world, is only the judge to people who believe he's the judge. But but the judge is actually whoever you want it to be, right? That's nonsense, that's foolishness. Or maybe you're like the officer who slapped Jesus across the face. You, you stand and oppose his authority and his commands, and in your sinfulness, you symb- symbolically slap him across the face. Maybe you believe he's, he's not truly God, and what he needs to do is just stay quiet in our society and in our world. Just stay quiet, Jesus. Or maybe you do believe that he's God and you know that your sins are an affront to his authority and to his glory. And you know that you have symbolically slapped him across the face. When you look at all the people in this passage, which one are you? I think you're all of them. And I think I'm all of them. We were all part of the world at one point. We did whatever the mob told us to do. We've all looked down on other people. We've all put ourselves in center stage and fooled ourselves into thinking that our life actually revolves around us and our advancement when in reality it revolves around God and his glory. We've all dishonored Jesus and slapped him across the face with the sin that we have chosen instead of obedience to him. So before we look at who Jesus is in this passage, we must see the overwhelming evidence that you and I are just like every sinful person in this passage. We've done the same sins as these people. We can't rag on Peter. We're no better than him or the rest of these people. And what do sinful people like us who betray God and mock him and judge him deserve? We deserve hell. We don't deserve to have God pay any attention to us. We deserve to be separated from him forever because of the way we've treated him and we've dishonored him and we've dishonored one another. We've dishonored the world that he's made. And so what do sinful people like you and me need? We need God to forgive us. We need him to forgive us of our sins. We need God to forgive us for not even seeking to obey his word. We need God to rescue us. We need him to be our rescuer. We need him to rescue us from our sin and from his own wrath 
which he pours onto everybody in hell because it's the just punishment for sin. And this is when we turn around and look at Jesus in the garden. Okay? Because where Jesus is, the gospel is. And where Jesus is, there is good news. Jesus stands in this courtyard at Annas' house in the middle of the night. The officers have him tied up. And it looks as though Jesus is a helpless man here. He's at the mercy of the court. But in reality, Jesus is God. Okay? He has let them tie him up. He's let them mock him. He's let them hit him across the face. Annas is not the true judge. Jesus is. Annas is not the true high priest. Jesus is. Jesus has already said, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. And whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent me, who sent him. Jesus is God, he is the true judge, and everyone in that courtyard who did not repent from their wrongdoing and sin will stand before Jesus in his final court when he returns to earth, and he will judge them with perfect righteousness and perfect justice. But in addition to being our judge and our high priest, Jesus is also the good shepherd and even the lamb of God who lays down his life to take the way take away the sin of all who turn to him. Jesus was the suffering servant of God described by Isaiah 700 years before this. In Isaiah 53, two to four, it says, it describes him, it says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In Annas' courtyard, Jesus was betrayed by us, so that if we trust in him for salvation, we will not go where betrayers of God should go. In Annas' courtyard, Jesus became a slave to the corruption of human sin and human sinful systems so that if we trust in Jesus for eternal life, we can be freed from the corruption of human sin in eternity. And yes, on this earth, we will still sin as Christians, but don't embrace your sins. Don't use your sinfulness as an excuse to keep on sinning. Don't tell yourself that you don't, you can't change your patterns of sin. I was born this way. I just, I was, I've been this way my whole life. Nobody can change me. This is just how I am. This is who I am. If you're in Christ, that's not you anymore. Okay? Jesus freed you from the corruption of sin so that now you can be free to pursue holiness and to not stay a slave to sinful patterns anymore in your life. In Annas' courtyard, Jesus had to stand in our place to fulfill all righteousness. He had to be more faithful to God than we are to God. Jesus had to be more faithful to us than we have been to him. 
Now, of every human being ever born on planet Earth, Jesus is the last one who deserved to endure the treatment he endured on Earth and would endure in the next 24 hours. But he continued to obey God in order to save his people and to obey and glorify the Lord. And with every minute of injustice that was to come, Jesus never surrendered. He never backed out of the mission. He never disobeyed God the Father. And he never abandoned you and me. He would go to the cross. He would bear our sins. He would receive the punishment of God's wrath toward our sin. And he did this to rescue us from the punishment we deserve for our sin. He did this to rescue us from our imprisonment to sin in this life and for eternity. And after suffering for our sins and dying and being buried in the ground for three days, Jesus rose again from the dead as the one true God, the true creator and judge of the entire universe, the true savior of the world, and the one and only redeemer and reconciler to God the Father. So he tells us this, turn from your sin and turn to the true judge and the true high priest, Jesus Christ, who will declare you not guilty in his eternal court by the blood he shed on behalf of all who turn to him for salvation and eternal life. Don't follow him from a long way away. Come close to him and abide in him. Abide in his love. Abide in his word. God wants you close to him. Live with him. Live with his people as he sanctifies us and shapes us into his own perfect image. God loves you. And he offers you the opportunity to entrust yourself to this good news of his grace this morning. Please talk to me or to one of our elders after the service today, if you are unsure where you stand with God today, or if perhaps you've drifted from God and you know you need to come back to him. I'd love to pray with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. And as we see the darkness of sin in this passage, uh, it's, it's shocking and it's disturbing and I thank you that you've given many of us hearts that don't want to be a part of it and that just want to be part of knowing you and loving you and bringing you honor and worth. And There's a lot in this passage, God, and so we ask for your help today as we meditate on this this week that you would challenge us in the unique ways that you know we need to be challenged and grown and that you would encourage us, Lord, uh, reminding us that you didn't do this because you had to, but because you love us and you want us with you and that we don't have to stay in a place of guilt and shame about our sin, but that we need to see it and we need to see that we have deliverance from it in you. We don't need to dwell there anymore, God. We can live to righteousness in you and praise you for the gospel work that you've done for us. Please help us to be your ambassadors in this world and share this good message of hope this Easter season with so many who perhaps have never heard it or who have not understood it correctly. We need you, Holy Spirit. We pray for your blessing this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.